welcome everyone who's here this morning. And we lately have had a number of visitors. We again have visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. And I hope we make you feel welcome. I hope you'll want to come back and be with us at every opportunity you have. There are some that are out sick, as James announced earlier. Let's remember them in our prayers. And uh, I'll add to that, I haven't been putting it in the bulletin constantly, but, but uh, my father is, he is doing fairly well. He's home from the hospital. Um, he's on oxygen. You know, he's, he's not in that great a shape. And I just ask you to please keep him in your prayers, if you will. I'd appreciate that. Without any further delay, let's get into the lesson this morning. We're going to return to our theme, and, and in particular, the emphasis for this quarter. And, and as I said in the last lesson a couple of weeks ago, really more this year, what we're going to talk about is divided into two halves, although there will be a particular emphasis, as you'll see that. But uh, really two broad ideas over the course of six-month periods. In this first quarter, we're emphasizing the idea of order in the church as the Lord built it. And this morning I want to in particular talk about, from John 17, the Lord's goal for unity. The Lord's goal for unity. And we'll describe that and discuss that as we get into it. So let's begin with this observation. Uh, Yeah, there we go. We emphasized in the last lesson from 1 Corinthians 14, a passage I'll return to this morning, but verse 40, we emphasized the idea that Paul uh, said to the church there, let all things be done decently, that is with what we would say, I guess today, with the proper decorum, and in order, that is arranged, properly arranged. And really the word that Paul uses without getting too deep into the etymology of it, but really the idea is something being properly arranged almost from a military standpoint. And it's like, it it is a word that would have been used for the way a general arranges his troops. And if you think about that and really compare that to who Jesus is, what Jesus is, that's what Paul is saying. He is talking about the idea of things being done in order as the Lord, the commander, if you will, wants things done. And so we would also observe, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 14, we'll also observe that Paul was making the point that order is based on truth. Jesus made that point in John 17, as we'll see in a moment. But order is based on truth, and truth is absolute. Now, that begins to hit at something I want to really emphasize this morning, because when we talk about unity, if I were to go out into most circles, especially religious circles, But if I were to go out into most circles in the world today and I were to throw the word unity out, really what people have done is abandoned the idea of unity in deference to being unified. And you don't hear the word unity as much anymore as you hear the idea of unification or being unified. And the meaning of that is that we will come together from diverse past or paths, and we will unify holding on to all of our differences. And that's where most people are. But if we look at Scripture, that is not what the Lord wanted. The Lord was not saying, I want you to come together as a bunch of Christians, separated as it were, diverse in that sense, by everything you believe and you hold on to, just kind of come together and unify 
No, the Lord wanted us to come together and accept the fact that He is the God of truth. And that there is a truth. Uh, West, last Sunday morning, began with Ephesians 4 and verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we're united in that. We're not just unified that you believe in a, a different Lord than I do, or you hold to a different faith than I do, or you subscribe or don't subscribe to the baptism that I do. We're not unified in that. No, we're united in believing Jesus is our Lord. The faith is based on His Word, His truth. And we come together as one because we've all been baptized into one body. And so as we go on here and we notice what Paul is saying, look at verses 36 and 37. Paul begins to talk about the idea of the Word of God coming to us. If we don't base order on truth, Anything less than that leads to chaos. And, and, you can, and when I say chaos, maybe you think of chaos as just everybody running amok in the streets. You can have, if you will, a chaotic arrangement. You can be unified and there still be chaos. We can come together in one place as we are this morning with all of us stubbornly holding on to what each of us believes and thinks and feels and we can give a facade, a false picture, that we're all one, but we really deep down know we're not. Now we can do that, but that's chaos. And really running amok within our hearts and minds is everybody going in a different direction. And that's not what the Lord wanted. God is not the God, if you look, if you're in 1 Corinthians 14, and look at verse 33, God is not a God of disorder, is what it literally says there. The King James says he's not the author, but you'll notice that's in italics, of confusion. You know what that passage is saying is, God does not direct disorder. God is not a disordered God. If there's anything that we know about God and anything we can see from Scripture, is that no matter how complex He is, He's consistent. God does not lie. God does not change. God does not go back on what God says. And if God ever does change something, it is because He has said from the beginning, given this set of parameters or this set of circumstances, I will change. And you can count on that. And God does not then give us direction or direct us through His commandments to be unstable. To be in a state of upheaval. Where at any moment, because we're running in different directions, there can be an overthrow of who we are and what we are. With the death of a person, for example. You know, if you're in a church, and the continuance of that church depends on whether or not the preacher lives through the week, you're in trouble, man. You know? Because I might die. If, if this, this church will only go on because two or three or four people here will demand that it be held together, then we're in trouble. But if this church is established upon the direction of Jesus Christ, and He's the Lord of all of us, then any of us are expendable, and the church will continue. God is not a God of disorder. Rather, He brings order. And you'll notice as Paul says in verse 33, God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And that peace is, 
that piece is based upon the truth, as in all the churches of the saints. And I might conclude from that, and I don't think I would be wrong in doing so, if a church is not based on the order directed by Jesus Christ, then it's not a church of the saints. It might be something else, but it's not one of his churches. We might make also the observation Paul did, if you'll notice again in verses 36 and 37. He asked the question, did the word of God come from you? When a person walks in here and asks the question, why does East Orange or Central Church of Christ or whatever, why does this church do what it does? If the answer is because Michael says so, or the answer is because the men meet and they tell us what to do, then we're wrong. And you're wrong for following it. And if you sit there and you listen to me and I say, this is what you have to do, and I don't cite book, chapter, and verse, and you say, well, Michael said it, that's what I'm doing, then you're wrong. The Word of God did not come from Michael or anyone else here. And you'll notice he goes on to say, and did it come to you only? Is it for this church to do what we do? For example, let's say with the Lord's Supper. I always use that as an example. It is central to what we do when we gather here. We honor our Lord. We honor His death. We honor the body and the blood of Jesus. Why do we do that? Because we decided at some point in the past, or a group of men decided at some point in the past, or a preacher decided at some point in the past that this is what we ought to do? The answer to that is no. If a person came in here and said, you know, I notice you guys do this. I, in my church I came from, and this would have been me, I would have said, we do this once every three months, and we do it on a Thursday night, and I notice you guys do this every Sunday. Why do you do that? And the first thing that would have happened is somebody would have pulled out a Bible and said, turn with me to Acts 20. And we would start reading. And that's exactly what happened when I asked that question almost 40 years ago. We do what we do. Because the Word of God didn't come to this church only, and it certainly didn't come from the people here. No, it came from Jesus. In John 17, and I'd like for you to turn back with me to that passage, and I'll look at just a few verses within John 17. But Jesus prayed for unity. Now, this is the night of the betrayal. It's the night before the crucifixion. He's in the garden. He is doing a lot of praying that night. But part of what he prayed in John 17 was for all his followers, for the apostles that night, and he made it specific, but not for them only, but every person in the future who would believe, who will believe. Jesus was praying literally for you and for me. Thousands of years down the road, when someone would be baptized and become a Christian, he was praying for that person right here. And he was praying that we all be united. Not that we be unified in our diversity, but that we be united. He was praying that everyone who believed in the future would be one. Notice the phrase here in John 17, verse 21, if you're looking at it. Well, I'm in the wrong chapter, so let me turn over there. But John 17, look down in verse 21 when he said that they all may be one. And he gave a, a comparison so we know exactly what he meant. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they be one like that, even as we are. 
Now, I've asked people many times over the years in discussions, various Bible studies, etc., especially when someone says, well, I know you believe this and I believe that. Or, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. And we've looked at this passage, and I've asked a question many times. And I've said, how divided is Jesus and the Father? What do you mean? Just that question. How do they differ? And eventually a person will have to answer, not at all. And and so I'll press that point. Do they have different beliefs about the way things should be done? No. Do they have different ideas about what can accomplish, what needs to be accomplished? No. So how different, how divided are Jesus and the Father? Not at all. Now let's look back at the passage. Jesus was praying that we be like that. Well, a person begins to look at that and says, is that practical? Can human beings be as united as the Father and Jesus? Is it even possible to be united like that? Most believe, and perhaps even people in this audience, I don't know that, I didn't poll anybody. Most believe that's not practical. And it's not really possible. That we must agree to disagree. Because we do disagree. I suspect if we went around this room today and we talked about anything, we'd find disagreements. In fact, I started to begin this lesson today, but I will throw the question out at this point and just ask the question, do you know anybody that you agree 100% with that person. Anybody. About everything. I don't. I got two people who live in a house with me, and I promise you we disagree about things. Sometimes very strongly. No, no, but we disagree about things. And I would venture to say that all of us would admit there's not any person on earth who agrees with me about everything. So a person says, so you see, it's not practical. Jesus prayed it, but it's not practical, and he knew it. It's not possible, and he knew it. Now, if you go to seminary, that's what you're going to be taught. And so a person would say, you've got to agree to disagree. And they say, we can only achieve unity in diversity. What does that mean? Well, it means that we will agree that we're all diverse, we all believe different things, but we're going to come together anyway, and that makes us stronger. And they'll begin to defend that idea. Now I ask the question, is that the unity that Jesus was talking about? Well, Jesus is saying to the Father, you know, Father, I didn't want to come here in the first place. But I agreed to it. And as it gets down to the hour of going to the cross, you know what? I really don't want to go. We know he did not want to go through that. But you know when you hear him pray, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Thy will be done. Now, does that sound like somebody that's stubbornly holding on to what he wants? Or someone who's in perfect, absolute agreement that what must be, will be. And that's how he went to the cross. When he got up from that prayer of saying, you know, human, 
feelings. Honesty. I don't want to go through this. He got up from that prayer and he went. It's fine to be a human being. It's fine to feel the way you feel, want what you want, think the way you think. God gives you that ability. He created you with that. But it is not fine to say, I will have my will no matter what. That's not what Jesus said at the garden. He agonized, he got up, he went. It's not the order of 1 Corinthians 14. It's not the disorder that we see and we hear on the parts of people. So I ask this question like this. Did Jesus merely pray for some unattainable ideal? In other words, it'd be great if people could be like us, Father, but they're not. And, and it would, in an idealistic sense, in a utopian church, everybody would know the same thing, believe the same thing, feel the same thing. Wouldn't that be great? It's not, it's not attainable, but as an ideal, isn't that great? Is that what Jesus was praying for? Or is it a matter of semantics? And when I say a matter of semantics, we usually use semantics in a negative way. Oh, it's just semantics. I'm not sure people even understand what they're saying when they say that. Semantics literally means the meaning of the words is important. So when you come together in a discussion, if you're talking about something, you know, Wes and I are going to have debates next month. And when we debate, it's important that we define what we're talking about. Because he can be talking about one thing, I can be talking about something completely different, and there's no way to discuss that got to have the same meaning. So is it a matter of semantics? And that is the need to understand what he meant. And I think it is. Because given that we do disagree, and, and we've already admitted that, we do disagree about things. You know? Given that we disagree, and that we will disagree in the future, because we're human, we ought to ask the question, is it okay to disagree? Now, don't jump to an answer But listen to the question. Is it okay? Okay in the sense of acceptable, all right, perfectly, you know, perfectly acceptable to God. Is it okay to disagree? Or, we might even say it like this, given that we disagree and we will disagree, is that where unity, order, etc. breaks down and can never practically be achieved? And I would say this, it depends on how you view John 17. Now, I can hear my friends down at Liberty saying, I see it, you finally got it, Michael, you know. I can hear that. Because they were viewing John 17 and saying, this is actually right. Jesus wasn't praying for what you call unity. Jesus was saying, we all come at it, we believe different things, and it's okay. It's not okay. That is not what Jesus is saying. And that's not even allowable if you start using the language of that they may be one as we are one, Father, you and I, etc. So it depends on how we view John 17. Again, we can say it's an unattainable ideal, be nice, but it's not. you can't really do that. Or we can say that it is an achievable, and I want you to notice the way I'm saying this. It is an achievable practicality. It is practical. For what Jesus prayed here. And it can be achieved. A person might say, hmm, I don't see that. I'm not sure about that. Well, let's go a little further. 
Well, Jesus is saying we have to reach a point where we never disagree. That, you know, that's just the way it is. We are never going to agree. But what we've got to do is somehow we've got to force, fight, no matter what it is you have to do, but you have to agree. I know some parent-children relationships like that. There's an extremely domineering individual, a parent, and the child will submit 100%. They will not think for themselves. They will not have views, thoughts, feelings, ideas, and they will totally submit or there's going to be war. I know of marriages like that that usually end in divorce. But I know of some. And generally speaking, it is the husband doing the demanding, but not always. I've known situations where a woman demands that everything she thinks be submitted to. Now, is that what Jesus was asking? Was that his goal? That no matter how hard we fight, no matter how much we fuss, no matter how much we end up hating each other, at least we come to the point where we agree on everything. I don't think any of us believe that. And so my answer to that is no, that's certainly not what he was saying in John 17. His vantage point in John 17, and I want you to look at verse 17 with me. Because this is the viewpoint. This is where Jesus sets the parameter before he ever says anything about unity. Sanctify. We spent a whole year talking about the idea of sanctify. Literally holify. Make holy. Set apart a group of people. So we're going to take a group of people from the world. And we're going to put them over here in another group. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we're going to say that the vantage point Jesus speaks of, the place I think we can understand this language. The place where we all are. In other words, somebody comes into this room and says, are you guys united? I think we can say yes. We have complete unity in this place. And you might say, man, that's crazy. We don't have that. I think we do. Because I venture to say that every person that would consider themselves a faithful Christian at this church believes this. That this is the Word of God. And it's right. I might not be, you might not be, but it's right. We are set apart into a group of people who believe that. And that's a lot. When you begin to look at that, you realize that's what Jesus speaks of. Now read this together with me, starting in verse 17. I'm going to point out a couple of things here. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As, now he begins to make a comparison here. As thou hast sent me into the world. Notice that. Commission. It literally is a word of commission. It's like a general sending someone on a mission. The Father sent the Son. As you have sent me into the world, even so, in that same manner, have I also sent them into the world. Now again, he's praying for the apostles who are especially commissioned. But notice, he will come back and say, it's not only that I'm praying about the twelve apostles, or eleven in this case now, but I'm praying for everybody who will ever believe. Now here is what Jesus is saying. How can we be united? We are united in this. We are commissioned through this, the Word. 
We are commissioned by Jesus and our allegiance is to Him. Can we agree on that? Now, I think we can. That you're not under the direction of the leaders of this church. If we had elders, you're not under the direction of the elders. You're certainly not under the direction of Michael White in the pulpit. You are under the direction of Jesus Christ. And we agree on that. We're commissioned by Jesus. We're in a position before Him, and He alone is Lord. No one else. Now notice as he goes on here. Neither do I pray for these alone, verse 20. But I also pray for those who shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and, and usually we leave off at 21, but we're not going to this morning, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Isn't that amazing? We know Jesus is glorified. Why is He glorified? Why do we speak of glory to Jesus? When we look at Jesus in this whole scenario of what's going on at this time, what is it that is so glorious? And what it is, is that Jesus accepted the responsibility, accepted the commission of the Father to come to this earth. We talked about it this morning. George, he talked about it. To come to this earth and to die for you and me, to go to the cross, to go through everything He did. And why did He do that? Because the Father sent Him to do that. And that's glorious. It's having that courage. It's having that will. It's having that, I'll go and do it at all cost. And that same glory comes to us when we do the same thing. When you and I obey God, when we are faithful to God in anything, and especially when we do it when we don't want to do it, you know, when we don't feel like doing it, when I look at myself and I say, what do I, what would I rather do? What would I choose to do if I could? And the answer is not what God says, not what I want. Father, if this cup, if it's possible, let this cup pass, but your will be done. Have you ever made that statement in your life? Has there been something in your life that was extremely painful, extremely hard for you to do? And yet you said, it's what's right, I must do it, and you got up and went and did it even though you didn't want to do it. Well, if you did, that's glorious. And every being beyond this world in the supernatural realm that is Satan who wouldn't do that, every demon who wouldn't do that, every one of them looks at us, our these pitiful human beings with all their frailties, and they got the guts and the courage to do that. That's why someday we will stand in judgment of those angels. God looks at us, Jesus looked at us in this prayer, and He says, the glory you gave me, I've given them notice that they may be one, even as we are one. Every Christian that ever stood through time and said, we can't do this, we must do that, because it's what Jesus said. That's glory. When someone else was saying, no, let's change it. I'd rather do it this way. I like it better that way. And someone or some people had the courage to say, no, let's do it the Lord's way. That's glorious. Jesus was speaking of a a position. 
before him. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, and let's read that quickly. It's the idea of being called into a fellowship, of sharing that with other Christians. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I beseech you, brethren. And what he basically is going to say is keep that. Maintain that. You were called into a fellowship to share with all Christians that Jesus is Lord. So speak the same thing. What are you speaking that is the same thing that every other faithful Christian speaks? What you're speaking is Jesus is Lord. Not me, but him. Be, the same, be of the same mind, we would say mindset, the same judgment. How can we do that? You say, you know, I'm, I'm for New England today, you're for Pittsburgh. How can we do that? Well, we agree, Jesus is Lord. My mindset is what he says is right. My, my judgment is that however Jesus says it should be and it must be, it will be. That's my judgment. Now, we may have to get there, but we all agree on that. So let's say we, we disagree about anything. If we come into it with the mindset and with the judgment that Jesus is right and all of us are not, then we're going to get there. That's the point. We, the whole collective, and I'll use that term a lot this year, everybody has been collected into this church by God. The whole collective, and even worldwide, We've been called. Notice that Paul uses that language, verse 9. We've been summoned by a superior into the fellowship. That's what we share together with Christ. Like Kevin read in 2 Thessalonians. We have been summoned by God into a fellowship to submit to our Lord. So we ask again. Is it okay to disagree? You say, well, I'm not sure you've been clear. And you know why? Because the answer to that is yes and no. Okay? And here's what I mean. Yes. It is okay to sincerely be at different points. We are. You know, in a few days from now, and I mean that literally, I will have been a Christian 40 years. That's special to me. I was 17 when I went into the water. I'm 57 now. I've got 40 years of Bible study. Bible study of books in the Bible that I didn't have a clue what was even in them. Not one! That I can remember sitting on a stump outside my first full-time preaching job. And sitting on that stump and saying, today we read the book of Colossians. Because we, Michael, don't know a thing about it. I remember those days. We're at different points. And so we, and please hear it, naturally disagree. We disagree because of age. An 11-year-old is going to disagree from an 81-year-old. And we have both. And there's the spiritual age of people. There's some of you that are sitting in here and you're in your first year of being a Christian. In the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And some of us are in our 39th year. And some of you double that time. A few of you anyway. Close to it. But my point is we're at different points. And circumstances lend to that. 
You come from here, I come from there, I've been here, you've been there, I've gone through this, you've gone through that. And so we've learned different things. And we have different abilities. Some of it's natural, you know. Some of it's acquired ability. Some of it depends on our level of education, which means, not that one is worse than the other, but it does mean that you have an advantage if you can read for example, you got an advantage over the little kid who can't. And there's Bible knowledge that lends to that. Why do I believe what I believe? Well, because maybe I know. Because I've had time to know. I do know what's in Colossians now, you know? And we could go on and on and on with that. So yes, it's okay to naturally disagree. And Jesus was not even remotely addressing that. That there would be people who would think different things. Logically, we know that. Other passages even say that. He wasn't talking about that. But no, it is not okay to disagree. And listen carefully. It's not okay to disagree regarding what God has addressed. Now, I don't think God really has an opinion about the Steelers or the Patriots today, Greg. He might, but I don't see it in here. But if he's addressed something, the Lord's Supper, baptism Wes talked about last week, it's not okay to disagree about those things. It's not okay to disagree. I mean, a person says, well, you just said that we naturally, yeah. But it's not okay to disagree and think it's okay to disagree. It's too important. Does Jesus want the Lord's Supper every Sunday? That's an important question. And it's not okay that I come away from this and I say, you know what, I've always done it on Thursday night, once every three months. And so you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. That cannot be okay. Because Jesus talks about it. And so we conclude with saying this. I believe the Lord's Supper, I did. Okay. Believe the Lord's Supper needs to be taken once every three months on a Thursday night and you believe every Sunday. Okay. Either I don't know, and I know I didn't, because I didn't have a clue about Acts 20 and verse 7 or 1 Corinthians 11 or any passage like that. But either I don't know, or you don't know, or we both don't know. But what cannot be so is if I think it's once every three months on a Thursday night and you think it is once every Sunday, that we both can be right. That's not unity. That's not order. That's confusion. And someone who is totally arbitrary walks in here, and some people believe once every three months on a Thursday night, so they come and they do that, and the rest of us believe once every Sunday morning, so we come and do that, and a person walks in and says, now wait a minute, and naturally they're going to ask the question, which is right? And how do we determine that? We go back to the Lord. And we say, let's see what the Lord says. And we start looking in here and we find the answers. We see the passages. Or someone points us to it. It doesn't matter. But we get there. And we say, okay, that's what Jesus says. And maybe we don't the first meeting or the second or the tenth or the twelfth or twenty years worth. But both of us come to it with this mindset. I don't know that I know. And what I know is right. And I don't know that what you know is right. But I know that this 
is right. As long as we hold on to that, we'll get there. And I think, I believe, at least, that's what the vast majority here are trying to do. We need to emphasize Jesus is Lord. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, you believe that he is the Lord. You're willing to confess that Jesus is the Son of God and submit to him. And if this morning you're willing to change whatever in your life needs to be changed, as you learn the truth, as you understand what the Lord has said, if you'll be baptized this morning for forgiveness of your sins, all your sins will be washed away. You will be in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're here this morning and you've done that and there's something in your life that particularly needs to be changed, you want to ask for the prayers of the people here, please come while we stand and sing.